The next matter on our calendar this morning is Mid First Bank versus Brown, uh, Court of Appeals, docket number 22283. And I'm struggling to find my briefs here. Um, so, are you ready to proceed? Yes, Your Honor. If you wish to reserve time for rebuttal. Yes, Your Honor. I would like to reserve five minutes, please. May it please the court. I'm Bonnie Keith Green, along with Wesley Deaton, co-counsel for the appellants, Betty Brown and Michelle Anderson. Appellants are entitled to summary judgment in this case for two reasons. First, Mid-First cannot show excusable neglect as a matter of law. And second, Michelle Anderson took title to the property by placing a valid upset bid at a properly conducted execution sale. I'm going to talk about three things today. First, the peak elements. Second, North Carolina's pure race recording statute. And third, the sheriff's deed. First, as to the peak elements, a party seeking equitable subrogation must show excusable neglect and Midfirst admits that its predecessor failed to discover the judgment lien. The North Carolina Supreme Court established the elements of equitable subrogation in peak, and they have been consistently applied. Midfirst must show excusable neglect to rely on equitable subrogation, and especially here, to undo a valid execution sale. A party's failure to locate a lien or judgment that appears of record means that party cannot show excusable neglect as a matter of law. Midfirst argues that it relied on Ms. Brown's signature on the owner's affidavit, indicating that there were no liens on the property. Under Peek, however, lenders cannot rely on borrowers to identify liens or judgments encumbering the property. Also, the title search was conducted prior to closing. The neglect had already occurred at that point, so the lender cannot rely on the owner's affidavit, and Ms. Brown's intent in signing the owner's affidavit does not matter. We don't want trial courts to rely on what occurs in a stack of closing documents to make a decision uh, in a case of equitable subrogation. This case is different from Wood, Withers, and NRA Project Homestead. In Wood, Withers, and NRA Project Homestead, the mistake that led to equitable subrogation was a closing attorney's mistake in failing to, to record a deed. It was not the mistake of the party seeking equitable subrogation in locating what already appeared of record. This case is like Lindley Labs, Falk, and the unpublished decision Countrywide Home Loans. In those cases, the party seeking equitable subrogation made the mistake. The doctrine of equitable subrogation allows this court to undo a mistake. The requirement for excusable neglect means that the party seeking the remedy and asking the court to undo the mistake cannot fix its own mistake. This court should not undo the error for a party that could have prevented the error. So was was this mid what's the name of it mid first mid first mid first was this mid first's mistake or was this nation star's mistake mid first admits 
that it was its predecessor's mistake. And I think the distinction is that a closing attorney um, fails to record something, thereby creating the problem with lien priority versus a um, lender making the initial loan, failing to locate what appears of record, and then that loan is purchased by another lender, which continues the mistake it's attributed to NationStar, Your Honor. And just to be clear, it's your, it's your position that even though it was MidFirst's predecessor that, that made this mistake, MidFirst cannot claim excusable mistake because its predecessor's mistake wasn't. Absolutely, Your Honor. That is what we contend. That is correct. And to that point, lenders loan money for a living. They know their security is the piece of property, and that is why we have um, we have this policy in North Carolina that the lenders are responsible for locating the judgments. Also, as to the equitable subrogation issue, MidFirst relies on the restatement third of property and the law of the five other states, Nevada, Washington, Indiana, Texas, and Florida. The restatement approach, however, directly contradicts the peak test elements. The restatement approach is the broadest approach. Those cases that I've indicated state that it's the broadest approach. And the restatement approach is a level the playing field approach, meaning that even if a lender admits that it had actual knowledge of an existing lien, the courts using the restatement approach will still apply equitable subrogation, which is far beyond what the North Carolina Supreme Court established in peak. The restatement approach says to junior lien holders, there's no material prejudice to you because you got what you already had, which was an inferior lien position. So this court should not follow the restatement approach. It should follow the peak elements and apply those consistently here. When we're talking about equitable subrogation, we're talking about balancing the equities. Am I correct? Yes, Your Honor. The peak test, it says that there should be perfect justice done. Okay, and so if we balance the equity of, in this case, appellant getting what, what has been characterized as a windfall, um, versus the appellee getting perhaps what it had bargained for at the beginning, it seems that the equities maybe, maybe favor appellee, but my question is not that. It is who balances those equities, and, and is that a proper summary judgment balance? Your Honor, in some cases, summary judgment is improper, as in the Wood case, where this court sent the case back uh, for the jury to balance those equities. But here, this is not like the Wood case. Here, there is not excusable neglect as a matter of law. Midfirst admits that it missed the judgment lien. And so, in this case, this is a question of, of law. It's not a question of the equities, and I, I'm happy to speak to those, If, but I take your question to not be with respect to the equities. But just this is a pure question of law. The facts are undisputed, and this court can decide as a matter of law that Midfirst missed the judgment lien. Okay, so I guess then, then, then my question is, 
take a step further. Let's, if this panel disagrees that with the excusable neglect analysis, and we do balance the equities, or the equities need to be balanced, where is that done? Is that done at the trial level by a, the trial court on summary judgment, or is that something for a jury? Were this case to go back? Your Honor, I don't think it's appropriate for a jury to be balancing the equities here. I, I don't think that, I think it's a, purely a, a question of law, but since we're talking about the equities, I'd like to speak to that issue because this is a case that has real facts and real story, and I think that may be of interest to the court. I guess my question is, could the trial court have decided this case by balancing the equities, or would that have been improper? That would have been improper, Your Honor, because okay. this is really a question of, did MidFirst find the lien? Did they conduct a thorough title search? And they <clears throat> did not, and so there's not, they cannot meet the North Carolina Supreme Court's test as a matter of law. Um, you were going to summarize the, the real facts and the real people. <laughs> okay. I, I will speak to that. Um, first of all, we know what happened in South Carolina was wrong. Ms. Brown admits that her conduct was wrong. She said it had to do with the death of her son. She has admitted that was wrong. It's not forgivable. It's not okay. But Michelle Anderson, her daughter, took her own money and purchased the property at a valid execution sale. She's not her mother. She's not an alter ego of her mother. The deposition testimony shows that she wanted to help her elderly mother and did not really know anything about execution sales. She asked questions when she found out about the execution sale, like, what does this mean? How can I help? There's no evidence at all that Michelle Anderson wanted to take advantage of the lender or colluded to take the property for improper gain or had fraudulent intent. And MidFirst uses the words uh, collusion, fraud, but they have not pled either of those claims and there is no evidence of fraud. Furthermore, the execution sale was a public sale where any person or company could have placed a, a bid or an upset bid. All of that information is publicly available and that is how public execution sales work. MidFirst knew about the execution sale because Ms. Brown called and told them the property was going to be foreclosed by execution. So MidFirst itself could have come and bid on the property at an execution sale. And also, the bid that Ms. Anderson placed is less than the fair market value of the property, and that could be characterized as a windfall, but that is the nature of execution sales. People, entities can bid, and frequently it happens that properties are sold at less than fair market value. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about North Carolina's pure race recording statute, which is important in the analysis here. There are only three states that are pure race states, North Carolina, Delaware, and Louisiana. And under that recording policy, the first party to record is in first position. North Carolina established this policy a long time ago in the late 1800s with the Connor Act. And under this policy, what appears in the public record governs. The filings in the public record rule the day. 
and closing attorneys, banks, and title companies have a high degree of confidence that they can rely on what is in the public record. And the North Carolina's Supreme Court's decision in peak was consistent with this pure race recording policy. And that means you can't jump to first position if you don't find an intervening judgment. MedFirst was charged with finding what is in the public record. Their duty was to find it, and they didn't. The bankruptcy court in NRA Project Homestead also emphasized the pure race recording statute. In that case, it came down to what appeared of record at the time the bankruptcy petition was filed. So even in, in NRA Project Homestead, which ultimately ended in a different result in this case, the bankruptcy court emphasized this pure race recording policy, which is of the utmost importance in North Carolina. Can you explain one thing to me? I think I understood that you said that the misrepresentation that there were no liens is not a basis for excusable neglect and that peak gets us to that answer. Is, did, did I misunderstand you? Why, why isn't this misrepresentation a valid basis for excusable neglect? Your Honor, for several reasons. First, under peak, the lender cannot rely on what a borrower says, and that is consistent in the Lindley Labs case and the Falk case and um, the unpublished decision in Countrywide. So the lender must discover what's in the public record itself. It, it can't go into a closing and expect the borrower to provide that information. It's a public record. In addition, as a, as a matter of timing, the title search is performed before closing, and so the neglect has already occurred at that point in time, so they, there cannot be justifiable reliance on what the borrower says at closing. I, I guess it would be more accurate to say it occurs twice than neglect. It occurs at the initial title search and then probably at the recording of the deed of trust, there should be a new judgment search. Um, and so it would have been missed twice, I guess, would be. Do you agree with that? Yes, Your Honor, I do agree with that. Um, so I'd like to speak to the sheriff's deed um, to some extent because MidFirst relies on that as their second argument. This case is distinct from most other equitable subrogation cases because there was an execution sale and a valid upset bid. If you look at some of the cases like Wood, um, Withers, there's a reordering of lien priority while the liens are still existing on the property. There hasn't been an execution sale. And that means there's a cutoff um, under the statute. So we have the peak elements and the doctrine of equitable subrogation. And then we have the statute, North Carolina General Statute 1-339.68B. And title in this case transferred to Michelle Anderson by statute under the statutory framework. And under the statute, only liens that became effective prior to the lien being executed on remain on the property. So if this court affirms the trial court, not only would it be undoing MidFirst's own title mistake, it would also be undoing a valid execution sale. 
And as to the sheriff's deed, this case is not about the fundamental right to contract. Parties don't go to an execution sale and seek a bargain for exchange. The statute controls and the parties cannot contract to leave liens on the property. The sheriff is merely an auctioneer and conveys title as specified in the statute. So once a buyer gets a sheriff's deed at a sheriff's sale, there is this cutoff. And that means subsequent buyers can rely on it. And subsequent buyers must be able to rely on it. So if this court were to grant summary judgment for defendant's appellants, it would be appropriate for the court to remand with instructions to the trial court to specify in the judgment that the sheriff exceeded his authority and that the only liens remaining on the property are those that existed prior to the execution sale. Does it matter in this case that the buyers would have had knowledge of that lien versus maybe a bona fide purchaser for value who had taken a sheriff's deed without actual or constructive knowledge of a prior lien? So, Your Honor, the question is, did Michelle Anderson have notice of the prior judgment? Mm -hmm. And does it matter that she was the one and, and her daughter who, who um, won the auction and took the sheriff's deed? I think that, or we contend that Michelle Anderson is not the alter ego of her mother, that she's an independent purchaser, and the rule that we would have the court make is consistent application of the peak factors. To create an exception to that here, based on the mother-daughter relationship, would be unworkable. The rule that Midfirst is seeking is un unworkable. How would the court create that exception and make that definition? Would it be a mother-daughter, um, parent-child, siblings, aunts, um, you know, a, a business partner. So the bona fide purchaser argument was made to the trial court. Midfirst hasn't made that argument in the briefs here. Under peak, we contend that the bona fide purchaser analysis is not the proper analysis for the court to make. But I don't think we're under peak if we're looking at the sheriff's deed as controlling, right? We're looking at whether the sheriff the sheriff's deed or the statute controls, right? Okay. Uh, yes, Your Honor. As to that question, even there, there is no requirement that there be a bona fide purchaser. I think any party with knowledge of any underlying liens could go to the execution sale. And so Michelle Anderson's knowledge about prior existing liens does not impact her purchase. There is no requirement that someone be a bona fide purchaser to place an upset bid. And as I mentioned, Midfirst could have gone themselves and placed the upset bid. And there's public notice as to what the next date for the upset bid would be and the, and the amount. And no other party placed another upset bid after Michelle Anderson. I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the impact, the rule that we're seeking and the impact of this court's decision. To rule in favor of Midfirst would mark an extreme change to the, to the rules. Appellants want to keep the status quo, enforce the execution sale statute, and apply the peak elements. To rule in favor of Midfirst would be a game changer for title law in a negative way. There is no way for closing attorneys, lenders, and title insurance companies to mitigate the risk 
from a ruling in MidFirst's favor and allowing MidFirst to be equitably subrogated to the First Horizon lien. MidFirst appears to concede that if an unrelated third party purchased the property, equitable subrogation would not apply. So what kind of rule would MidFirst make? What they are seeking here is not workable. And that is the issue I was just speaking to of how do you define an exception to this rule based on how close a family member it is, a business partner. In Lindley Labs, the court said subrogation is not an absolute right, but one which depends on the equities and attending facts and circumstances of each case. And this court has looked at the facts of every case distinctly in deciding cases of equitable subrogation. But in this case, the facts require that the court um, find that there's not excusable neglect as a matter of law. And if the court does not have any further questions, I'll reserve my remaining time for rebuttal. Any questions? Thank you very much, Ms. Green. Welcome. Thank you. May it please the court. My name is Ben Layton. I'm here with my colleague Ryan Hoffman. We represent Appley MidFirst Bank. One thing that counsel for appellants and I generally agree on is the timeline of this case, and so I'd like to proceed with the legal arguments. There are two issues that are before the court. First, is MidFirst Bank entitled to the equitable remedy of equitable subrogation, where it was excusably ignorant of the judgment encumbering the property based on appellants' fraudulent statements indicating that no such encumbrances existed? Second, does the sheriff's deed convey the property subject to all encumbrances as stated by the deeds on ambiguous terms? I'd like to start with the first argument, equitable subrogation. Appellants take the position that this court's inquiry cannot extend past the fact that the judgment at issue is publicly recorded. If you accept this position, you cannot consider appellant's affirmative fraud, that being her statement providing that no encumbrances exist with respect to the subject property. Further, this position would have the court ignore the fact that appellants pooled and commingled their funds together so that the property could be purchased in Ms. Anderson's name while Ms. Brown continues to reside there. If you embrace this position, you cannot consider the fact that the property at issue was sold for a mere fraction of its value. Appellants try to distill equitable subrogation down to a binary determination of whether or not the encumbrance at issue was of public record. And if so, their position is that this court's hands are tied. This position flies in the face of the equitable doctrine of equitable subrogation. In Judge Collins's opinion in a state of wood, she quotes the Supreme Court of North Carolina for the following proposition. Equitable subrogation is a creature of equity whose basis is the doing of complete, essential, and perfect justice between all parties without regard to form and its object is the prevention of injustice. 
Equitable subrogation is a broad, flexible doctrine that is designed to prevent exactly the type of injustice that is before the court today. From an equitable perspective, it is also important to understand how we got here. Appellant's fraud is not limited to the misstatements in her affidavit. Her fraud is also the genesis of this dispute. In 2006, appellant forged a signature on a deed to a different piece of real property, transferring the interest of another in the property to herself. She then- But the basis of that judgment doesn't have anything to do with the fact that you missed this registered judgment through a search, correct? Well, Your Honor, I would contend that it factors into the equitable determination. But when we're looking at excusable neglect and a large company, I would assume with quite a few attorneys and title searchers, is it really valid to say that you relied on this one person, just a single person's statement that there were no liens, that you wouldn't check behind that? Your Honor, in this case it is, and I'd like to explain why. If you run a title search, or excuse me, a judgment search in Mecklenburg County, and this court can take judicial notice of that, there are 37 judgments that appear associated with the name Betty Brown. It is a common name. Some of these occurred prior to the refinance and some are after the refinance. But in the context where there is a common name, a litany of judgments associated with that name, and an affirmative statement from the borrower that no encumbrances exist with respect to the subject property, that neglect is excused. But doesn't doesn't Lindsay Labs say Lindley Labs say exactly the opposite? That a borrower cannot rely excuse me, that a lender cannot rely on a borrower's statement? Well, I think what Lindsay Lindley Labs discusses is this idea that you cannot be absolved of your responsibility to do your own due diligence merely because the borrower says something otherwise. Now, between, between the borrower here and, I guess it was Nation Star, um, mid-first deficits, um, one is an individual, the other is a business who's in the business, in the business of making loans. Doesn't that business have a much greater ability to be able to search the record to find out? And isn't, isn't the, the reason that this is distinguishable from, um, from the other cases where the equitable doctrine has been applied is because there was not a mistake made with the reporting of the deed there wasn't a mistake made by someone else. Um, Midfirst or its predecessor simply made the mistake of not finding the lien. Your Honor, there's nothing in the record here that indicates there was a mere oversight in the title examination. The record is sparse with respect to the title examination. And so in this context, where there is a common name, the title examiners are put in a situation where they need to rely on the borrower's representations as to whether or not these multiple judgments, which may or may not be associated with the borrower, are in fact associated with that borrower. So are you proposing that we have a, an <clears throat> exception to Lindley Labs for any case involving Brown, Smith, Jones? No, Your Honor. Other common names? No, Your Honor. I'm simply suggesting that under this equitable doctrine of equitable subrogation, this court can consider the fact that this is a common name. And based on the fact that there is no evidence that there was an actual oversight, all that there is, we contend that 
Certainly MidFirst was ignorant of the fact that this specific judgment is attributable and associated with Ms. Brown. How do we know that? Well, Your Honor, we, we can see that for the purposes of this argument. The record is sparse with respect to that issue. How, how, let, let me take you back a step. How do we know from this record that MidFirst Bank loaned this money to Ms. Brown with the assumption that it would be the first lien? Well, Your Honor, I mean, that was, they, the, the, the appellants denied that allegation, if, I'm, if I read the pleadings correctly. Your Honor, I believe that is an undisputed fact in this case based on the allegations in the verified complaint. So, but it, so if I told you that, that Ms. Brown's answer denied that allegation and that the discovery responses actually, the request for admissions also denied paragraph 12, you would agree with me there's no other evidence that says that MidFirst Bank thought they were loaning this. There's nothing that shows that there was an agreement that this would be a first lien. Your Honor, there's an affidavit from a representative of MidFirst Bank, and there's also deposition testimony, I believe, from appellant Ms. Brown to that effect as well. Okay. And there, were, there was, in fact, a judgment paid off at closing. Is that correct? Uh, with respect to the Nation Star refinance? No, a judgment. A judgment. It shows on the last page of the closing statement that a circuit court judgment was paid off. Is that correct? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. And so um, and when, when that affidavit was signed that there was no judgments, and obviously there were some judgments that were being paid off at closing. There were credit cards. There were other kind of things. Is that correct? Yes, Your Honor. And so MidFirst Bank found that lien but just missed this other one. Your Honor, there is nothing in the record as to MidFirst Bank missing this specifically. What, does there need to be? Wait, 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 do, do you disagree that this lien was valid and existed at the time MidFirst Bank loaned Ms. Brown this money? No, Your Honor, we do not. You, you don't, you, so you don't think the judgment was actually there and rec properly recorded, no. investigated? Excuse me, we do not disagree. That is accurate. Okay, well, if it... If it wasn't paid at closing, and you don't dispute that it exists, what other alternative is then other than that the title, the, the attorney missed it, or the title abstractor missed it? That the that the party refinancing could have been aware of it, but relied on the affirmative affidavit, which represented that there were no encumbrances associated with the property. So, you you would argue to this court that. Closing was scheduled, amount was agreed to, payoff statements for all the outstanding balances on credit cards, car loans, whatever, circuit court judgment, all that was found out and prepared on the closing statement, but the bank didn't rely on anything but her affidavit the day it closed. Your Honor, frankly, that is not part of the record. And so I would have to speculate to answer that, but that is what the record appears to reflect. Well, you would agree the record would reflect that some actions were taken by the bank or its title abstractor prior to the day of closing and her signature of that affidavit? Yes, Your Honor. And okay. the closing documentation certainly reflects that a title examination was conducted. Yes. Okay. Now, Sorry, I, I apologize. So just so that I understand your argument, you're, 
is, is it your argument that you are speculating that because there were so many liens with that last name that they then relied on appellant's affidavit? That is your, that's your speculation as to what happened? Yes, Your Honor. The, the record is not clear with respect to the reliance aspect, but our position is that given this broad, flexible, equitable doctrine, in light of the affirmative misrepresentation that no encumbrances existed with respect to the property, that the doctrine can apply and that mid-first ignorance in this context is excusable based on that affirmative misstatement. So, so you are denying that, that they missed this. You're just saying that they just relied on her. They knew all, they knew about it. They knew there was something there. But instead of going further, they just relied on her affidavit. Is that sort of the argument? Your Honor, I think that is a reasonable understanding, but the record does not okay. get into that level of detail. Okay. With respect to appellant Ms. Anderson, she worked in conjunction with Ms. Brown to attempt to eliminate mid-first interest in the property. And the record reflects the undisputed facts that Ms. Anderson was aware of the South Carolina judgment that she pooled and commingled funds with her mother in connection with the sheriff's sale, and that she admits that the purchase price she paid for the property is less than its value. In fact, the purchase price of the property, approximately $103,000, grossly undervalued the property, which had a 2019 tax appraisal value of approximately $486,000. And it is true that you all could have placed an upset bid, correct? It's, it's a free-for-all. Yes, Your Honor, that okay. is true. And do you dispute, uh, Ms. Green pointed out, that MidFirst had notice of the, of the um, sale? Your Honor, there is some evidence in the record via Ms. Brown's deposition testimony that re she reached out to an affiliate or a representative from MidFirst Bank and made them aware of the foreclosure. There's nothing in the record that reflects MidFirst Bank ever received any formal notice related to the sale. And I think the critical inquiry, the critical point in time, is the time of the refinance. And at that time, there was no such awareness of the encumbrance. But at the time of the refinance, the lien was as of record out there in the world to be found by a company that is in the business day in and day out of loaning money to people. Yes, Your Honor. That is accurate. The key issue before this court, as we've been alluding to, is whether affirmative fraud by a borrower can operate to, an ex to excuse a lender's ignorance of a lien or other encumbrance. It is true that if a lender is simply negligent in failing to locate a publicly recorded encumbrance, they have no excuse for their ignorance, and that lender cannot invoke equitable subrogation. But if the cases cited by appellants, American General, Countrywide, Falk, and Lindley Labs, none involve fraud or misstatement similar to what is before the court in this case. Each of these cases simply involve an unjustified oversight. But when we look at the one case we've been discussing, Peak, that is a case in which the borrower acted in concert with another to make a false representation to the lender. The concept of excusable, of excusable ignorance in that case did not operate to bar the doctrine. While Peak deals with personal property rather than real property in the equitable subrogation context, the same principles apply, and it remains a seminal case. Unlike the borrowers, unlike the other cases cited by appellants, Peak involves a borrower who worked in concert with another individual to make affirmative misrepresentations to the lender bank via affidavit similar to this case, indicating that no encumbrances existed with respect to the subject property. 
Additionally, the encumbrance the bank was ignorant of in Peak was publicly recorded. And while Peak is cited for its reference to the concept of excusable neglect, the Peak Court did not determine that the lender's inexcusable ignorance barred the application of the doctrine. Instead, the Peak Court found only that equitable subrogation did not apply because in that case there was insufficient allegation and proof that the loan was made for the purpose of discharging the prior lien. There is not a semblance of a suggestion in that case that the bank was not excusably ignorant despite the encumbrance being publicly recorded where there was a misrepresentation to the bank indicating that no encumbrances exist. Here, there is no dispute that mid-first loan to appellant was extended for the purpose of discharging the prior lien, and the claim does not fail for the reasons it failed in Peak. However, similar to Peak, despite the public recording, excusable neglect does not bar the application of the doctrine where there is affirmative fraud by the borrower. Peak is consistent with the understanding that the application of equitable subrogation is not based on some binary decision, nor is there a bright-line rule that constricts the doctrine in this way. North Carolina jurisprudence does not dictate that the inquiry ends because the encumbrance was of public record. The critical inquiry before this court is whether or not the lender had an excuse for failing to locate the encumbrance. There is no dispute that Midfirst was not aware that the lien at issue was associated with the borrower, Betty Brown. There's also no dispute that Midfirst paid funds to pay off Betty Brown's obligations to her prior lender in exchange for a first position lien. There's also no dispute that Ms. Brown affirmatively signed documentation as part of her refinance, providing that no liens encumbered the property. In sum, considering one, the original fraudulent conduct that gave rise to the judgment, two, the affirmative misrepresentation from appellant providing that no encumbrances existed with respect to the property, and three, that the funds lent to appellant were provided to pay off her prior loan in exchange for a first position lien, the doctrine of equitable subrogation should operate to establish bid-first lien as a first-position lien on the property. I'm going to ask you a question that I was um, asking co-counsel on the other side. It sounds to me like you say that you meet the legal elements of equitable subrogation, but whose job is it to balance the equities then? You've given us lots of equities on your side, and, and, and I think the argument is that the equities favor you. But is that something for the trial court, or is that something that shouldn't be decided in a summary judgment? Yes, Your Honor. In this context where there is no dispute as to any material fact, we believe it is proper for the court to make the legal determination as to whether or not the application of the doctrine is justified in this instance. But, but, isn't, but isn't the summary judgment a two-step analysis? I understand we don't have any, maybe any dispute as a fact, but entitled to judgment as a matter of law. As a matter of law, to me, balancing equities doesn't seem like a legal decision. It seems like a jury decision. Yes, Your Honor. Our position is that under the facts and the lack of material dispute here, the court is empowered to make a legal determination because as a matter of law, Mid-First Bank is entitled to the claim of equitable subrogation. So if this panel were to disagree with your argument, just to be clear, um, you're certainly not saying this should go back for a jury trial. You're saying it's the trial court's decision as a matter of law, one way or the other. That is our position, Your Honor. If Your Honors have no further questions with respect to equitable subrogation, I'll proceed to our secondary argument. I want to stress, however, that we do not need to get to this point. But still, 
Turning to the next argument before the court, the terms of the sheriff's deed provide that the property was conveyed subject to all encumbrances, which includes the Midfirst Bank deed of trust. The sheriff's deed conveying the property to appellants repeatedly provides that the conveyance was made subject to all encumbrances. It states the conveyance was made, quote, subject to all liens and any encumbrances of any kind or nature, recorded or unrecorded, against the subject property. Appellants point to North Carolina General Statute Section 1-339.68b, which provides that, quote, any real property sold under execution remains subject to all liens which became effective prior to the lien of judgment. This statutory provision does not provide that junior liens are necessarily extinguished. There is nothing in the statute to prevent the sheriff from conveying the property subject to all encumbrances. It's worth noting that there is nothing atypical about parties contracting in a way to impact lien priority. This happens all the time, for example, through subrogation agreements. I also want to note that the purchase price for the property, approximately $103,000 for a property that had been appraised at $486,000, only makes sense based on an understanding that the property was being conveyed subject to all encumbrances. In sum, there was nothing to prevent the sheriff from conveying the property subject to all encumbrances, and it is clear based on the language of the deed that the, con that the property was conveyed subject to these encumbrances. Let me, let me ask a question there. Um, and I know this is not in the record, but if, if I understand your argument correctly, what you're saying, if we were to find on that argument for your client, if, and I don't know that it is, it's not in the record, but if this deed that was used in this execution sale is the normal deed that the sheriff of Mecklenburg County uses, that kind of finding would mean that every execution sale that the sheriff's done where it had been assumed that all the junior lien holders would were extinguished. If the same language appeared in that, then all hundreds, maybe thousands of people in Mecklenburg County would all of a sudden have all these liens back on their properties that they bought through execution sale. Is that, is that your, if they had the same language that is in this deed, that they would not have been extinguished? Your Honor, it's difficult for me to speak on a deed that is not before the court. Right. But our position is simply that the language that is on the deed controls the terms of the conveyance. And any other deed should be treated the same based on the language that is within that deed. <coughs> Returning to the equitable subrogation argument in closing, Midfirst Bank loaned $282,000 to appellant, believing that it was stepping into the shoes of a first position lien holder. It had every right to believe it was receiving a first position lien because that is exactly what appellant represented it would be receiving. Contrary to appellant's arguments, this court is empowered to apply the doctrine of equitable subrogation. Such an application would facilitate the precise goals of the doctrine, <clears throat> that being to do complete, essential, and perfect justice. Your Honors, if you have no further questions, I respectfully request that you uphold Judge Edie Williams' decision granting summary judgment in favor of Midfirst Bank, and I thank you for your time. Thank you, thank you very much. Several, several points, Your Honors, on rebuttal. 
First, as to the equities, Ms. Brown is still liable on the underlying MidFirst note, and her debts were not completely wiped out by this. MidFirst, however, elected its remedies to sue to quiet title. They did not sue on the note, um, but she is also still obligated on the unsatisfied portion of the judgment. So those that speaks to the equities in this case. Your Honors, as to Judge Collins' opinion in Wood and why that is different, I've already spoken to the issue that that involved a closing attorney error. It really doesn't matter the context here, whether it was a purchase money transaction, a bankruptcy dispute between a trustee. This is an equitable doctrine like any other equitable doctrine, latches, waiver, estoppel, a party can assert one of those equitable defenses to different types of litigation, to a contract dispute, a construction dispute. But you have to meet the elements of the equitable doctrine. There has to be guardrails around it. And in this case, distinct from Wood, Midfirst cannot meet the peak element, and they haven't shown excusable neglect. So I'd ask this court to just keep those guardrails around the doctrine and not create an exception to excusable neglect. This is different from Judge Collins' opinion in Wood. Uh, this goes to Judge Inman's question about the judgments that are in the name of Brown in the um, Mecklenburg County Register of Deeds. Um, we asked the court not to make an exception on those that argument because there's a common name. That's not a workable exception. That would create that would upend title law as it exists, and that's not a reason to find that the lender here, Midfirst or its predecessor, Nation Star, can show excusable neglect. Um, again, as to the argument about whether Midfirst conducted a title title search and failed to locate it, we cannot speculate on that. It's not clear from the record, but at the transcript, pages 25, 27 to 28, and 38. Midfirst concedes that its predecessor missed the judgment. Well, yeah, and also, I mean, the closing statement certainly had a title search fee on it. You agree with that, right? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. I do. Um, I'd like to speak to the issue of the argument that Ms. Anderson worked in conjunction with Ms. Brown to eliminate Midfirst's lien. I've already spoken to that a little bit. She's not an alter ego, and there's simply no evidence that there was collusion here to eliminate Midfirst's lien to, to create an execution sale. It appears that, you know, that she did not know anything about the execution sale. That's just simply not in the record. There's no evidence of that. Um, as to the value that she took the property for, as I mentioned before, at execution sales, properties are taken for less than fair market value. That's just how the system works, and anyone can come in and bid. And there is no obligation on Ms. Anderson to pay any more for her bid than what was required at the execution sale. I take a little issue with Mr. Layton's description of peak, and think it's getting into perhaps more detail than we need to get into, but I, I, we don't, I don't understand Peek to say that Moffitt and Peek were acting in concert. What happened in Peek was that the first element that the court established was not met, that 
the loan taken out by Moffitt from Wachovia was not to pay off the prior loan, and that's why the North Carolina Supreme Court did not apply equitable subrogation in peak. The North Carolina Supreme Court established the element of excusable neglect in that case, but that really wasn't the issue. The issue was the purpose of the loan. And as this court has applied North Carolina Supreme Court precedent following peak, the excusable neglect element has been consistently applied. Um, also, as to Judge Jackson's question, a ruling for mid-first in this case, particularly on the sheriff's deed issue, would upend title law in North Carolina and in Mecklenburg County and in all counties because the sheriff cannot make a deed subject to recorded liens and unrecorded liens, whether they're recorded or unrecorded. There needs to be a cutoff, and there is a cutoff provided under North Carolina General Statute 1-339.68B. That's how the statute works. Allowing that would also contradict North Carolina's pure race uh, recording policy, which is established by statute. So in conclusion, um, I would like to say that Betty Brown admits her conduct was wrong, but this case is not based on the equities or the underlying judgment. The question is, did the lender do a thorough title search? Did it find all liens that appeared of record? If you rule in favor of defendant's appellants and reverse the trial court, the statute governing execution sales will be given effect. The peak elements will be applied consistently. There will be certainty for lenders, attorneys, title insurers, and purchasers. And appellants request that this court reverse the trial court and remand with instructions to enter summary judgment in their favor. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, counsel, for your excellent arguments. We are going to now adjourn this official uh, session of the Court of Appeals and via ease for some questions uh, from the students. All rise. This session of the North Carolina Court of Appeals is adjourned. <laughs>